Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On this episode, we're joined by Mike Lansing of the Boys and Girls Club of L.A. Harbor, who talks to us about how he adjusted operations and fundraising strategy in order to support new needs, new programs, and new services. Hey, Trent, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Julie. It's, it's slow, and, but, it's, but it's steady. I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. It's kind of reached a less frantic pace of work now that I think we've all realized that we can't really plan too far in advance. So we have to take each week as it comes, but it's kind of evened out for me at this point. Yeah, I, I agree. We're, we're daring to start talking about what the future is going to look like. I think we've, we've gotten through, not because we've accomplished anything, but because we've just kind of gotten through the, the crisis triage mode. And now we're starting to talk about What's our grant making going to look like in the long run? How can we be of service to those that we work with? And what does it look like in terms of how we work in the months to come? And I, I think we've, we've realized that all of the events that we had planned for spring and summer are gone. And we're hoping for a busy fall. So, so that's kind of where we are now. What are the conversations looking like on your end in terms of what grant making looks like from here on out? Because the thing I'm hearing from a lot of nonprofits is they're already worried about what happens next. Like, will there be enough for everyone at the end of the year? What does next year's fundraising look like? I think those are very real considerations. I think that, you know, that, that foundation corpuses are down and Corporate corpuses will be down and individuals, which are the, you know, the true support network for nonprofits in this country. You know, people are laid off, people are furloughed, people are, you know, taking pay cuts. And historically, we have seen, for the most part, that charitable giving is the last thing in people's budgets. So I think it's a scary time for nonprofits. I can also tell you as a, as a foundation, you know, executive, I'm wondering which of all the nonprofits that we support are going to be around in the fall and what that's going to look like. You know, it, it's a tough time. And we all know that nonprofits are the true safety net of our society. So I, I'm scared, but I know that there are a lot of really great thinkers out there and really great leaders out there. And that if anybody can come through this crisis, I have a lot more faith in our nonprofit leaders than I do in my average neighborhood restaurant. That's, that's good to hear. And I will say that that it's a good segue into today's guest. When I spoke to him to prepare for this interview, I realized there were so many good things going on in his organization. I'm, this is kind of like an everything conversation from fundraising to operations to moving programs online. So without further ado, Mike Lansing is the executive director of the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Los Angeles Harbor, which is the largest private child development agency in the entire South Bay. He is actually an alumnus of the club and has also served on its board of directors. So I don't think you'll have anyone that knows more about the organization there. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Julie. And hi, Trent. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us. And Mike, you are a grantee of the Eisner Foundation. Is that right? Yes. The intergenerational volunteer program. It's been great for our organization and our kids. It's been a good, uh, good partnership. It's been a great partnership. I, I, I rarely stand up and applaud nonprofit leaders just because I'm worried about where that 
gets us in the long run, because if you tell somebody they do a great job, then they expect you to write a check. But I can tell you that, that Mike Lansing is one of the better leaders that I've ever encountered in the nonprofit world and somebody that we've been really proud to invest in for the last decade, maybe, Mike? I believe so. Thank you, Trent. Much appreciated. You know, when you say that, that Mike runs the Boys and Girls Clubs of the LA Harbor, what exactly does that mean, Mike? How, how big is your organization? How many clubs are there? How many kids do you serve? And what's the, what's the total budget? We now have 20 locations in the greater LA Harbor area. And that's included merging two uh, other Boys and Girls Clubs that were in uh, dire financial situations. So we originally merged with the Wilmington Boys and Girls Club to establish the new name, LA Harbor Boys and Girls Clubs. And then just last year, the South Bay Boys and Girls Clubs that were serving Harbor City, Harbor Gateway, they were closing their doors. And so we agreed to take on their five locations rather than let them close. Currently, we just opened our 20th site in the Harbor Hills County Public Housing Facility here on our northern border of San Pedro, between San Pedro and Lomita. Our budget's now currently 9.3 million. We served last year over 11,000 youth, over 9,000 of those were members, 2,600 youth a day. And you know our focus is comprehensive programming from college-bound, career-bound, fine arts, academic support, music, dance, recording arts, STEM, major food program every day for our kids at the club. and a large transportation program. We were transporting over 600 youth a day in our in our buses to get them to the, the, the traditional club sites. We're the largest boys and girls club in all of LA County now. It's a, really a, a stand-up organization for me from, from when I was a kid to now when I'm, my beard is turning wider every day. <laughs> so Mike, what does a typical day look like for you regularly before all this? Well, you know, normally, since we're operating all of our sites every day, I have three regional directors. I have a director of operations, and all of them I meet with usually once or twice a day, usually on the phone or however, to see what's needed to to run the operations that day. They're the ones in charge, but you know, I want to make sure I'm there to help out in whatever issues or challenges or things that come up. And then as the day goes along, I mean, to be blunt, you know, when you when I started here, my my budget was two hundred and seventy thousand dollars, and now when it's you know nine point three million, you know a large part of my day is how do I work with my development team and board to maximize the revenues that we can bring in so we can do the comprehensive program so we can run all of these sites. So my normal day, I, you know, I'm probably spending seventy percent of my time on resource development partnerships you know, grants, individual donors, working with foundations, working with government entities. And then the rest of the time is more, how do I support my team in doing all the great work that they're doing? Because they're the ones at the front lines working day in, day out with our our youth. And then, of course, working with our board. Uh, We have a, a really strong board, a really dedicated board. And how do I support them in their efforts to support the organization? So let's jump ahead to, to COVID-19 then. When it first came on, arrived, how did your team respond? Well, you know, when it when it first came on, the interesting thing is about six months ago, we started a safety committee that would meet regularly rather than just periodically. Establishing a safety committee is part of our Boys and Girls Schools of America membership requirement. And, and it's really a great requirement. It's made up of board members. We have a normal facilities committee that oversees all of our facilities, makes sure we're keeping them up. So our safety committee started meeting once or twice a month 
made up of board members and staff on what do we need to do to keep our kids safe, our staff safe? What are some of the normal steps that we need to take to make sure that we have the safest locations possible for everybody involved? Once COVID-19 hit, it was interesting because we had already been talking about other parts of safety, making sure that we all of our facility are up to speed in terms of all of the safety measures that we have in our buildings, whether they're fire alarms, sprinkler systems, exit doors, ways of passage during any kind of emergency. But then this hit and we shifted really quick to, okay, those are important, but now what do we do? We have an entity that's probably going to have to close down temporarily. How do we use that time best to prepare for reopening? And then what do we do during that time that we can't run our, our normal operations? And I think that's something to our benefit. We, we pivoted really quick and said, how do we support the families? You know, our focus is those families that need our services the most that can't afford private lessons and activities, but have really good kids and just need an opportunity. So what can we do right now when we can't operate normally? So I went to my team and said, you know, what if, what if we opened up our own distribution centers, food and other materials, even though LAUSD was doing their sites away from those neighborhoods where maybe families weren't able to get to the food and the daily needs. And I said, what if we opened up a site Monday through Friday, offering them a, a full meal and a snack that can be grab and go? But what if we also did school supplies every Monday, books every Wednesday, art supplies every Friday, and what if we did virtual programming? You know, we have our recording studios. What if we use those opportunities to get programs out? And we're going to continue our college bound program virtually, online, over the phone, via texting and other connectivity so that our seniors especially can have that helping hand. So I posed this to my team. I said, how do we make this work? We've got a daily food program that just serves our own kids with a snack and a hot meal every day. But what if we just open this up to the greater community? Can we, can we make this work in these harder to get to neighborhoods? And so we started with one for a week and say, well, let's do this for a week with one location. And how do we make that work logistically and staffing wise? And so we, we, we just started with one and first day we had 87 I think meals and snacks, and then we thought we were really marketing it well. Then the next day, we had, we had 354 people pop in and said, "Whoa, I guess the, the need is there." And so that's how we started, and then we've just been adding on uh, sites, and we just opened our seventh site last week. I'm sure you did not go into new service lines lightly. So to move from the services you were providing into food distribution is close to what you used to do, but it is kind of a big move for you. What was the decision-making process like for your team? And were there ideas that you didn't go with? Really good question. I think the key is is that, you know, we've known that food insecurity has been a major factor affecting a lot of our families before the crisis. And while we knew personally and as an organization, we couldn't really do a lot to help the health crisis, seeing what was coming down the line economically with businesses closing and all this, we said we could do something on the economic side, helping with uh, food distribution and making sure people had access to daily food. So 
we knew that, look, we have these locations already. They're in neighborhoods of need. We have lots of families we're already serving. Uh, we have a food program. This isn't our normal food program, but our staff is pretty nimble and we have a tendency to add things on and change with need as an organization on a pretty regular basis. So it wasn't a huge pivot for us, although obviously a lot different than our normal daily program and service delivery. But it kept that connectivity with our families in a time of real um, uncertainty, even them just coming in, getting food or getting supplies and books, having that connectivity with our staff. You could see that they really appreciated that. And it also gave us a chance to continually think about, well, how do we get other opportunities to pile on to this? So, because this was kind of, okay, this is what we're going to do. Is somebody else going to be able to partner with us? And it just so happened that a young man who uh, was originally from San Pedro, originally went to school, a school that I taught at for 14 years, done really well and said, came back and told the local councilman, I want to donate a half a million dollars to help people in need of food. You know, what's a nonprofit in the harbor area that you think uh, we should work with? And he said, well, I think you should work with the Boys and Girls Club. They're already setting up these stations and working with these families and they're opening up to the greater uh, community. So that, that became our first partner in this. And we've just been using that money as pass-through, not just, but it's pretty awesome, as pass-through to add on Vaughn's gift cards. We've already passed out $380,000 in Vaughn's gift cards to be able to purchase food at, at stores. And through a gentleman's generosity, um, I'll throw his name out there once, Chuck Ursini. Chuck, you're a rock star. Thank you. He also wanted to see if we could work with local restaurants. So I had to start running around and figure out which restaurants can provide uh, 100 hot meals. It's 100 family pack meals. So 100 meals to serve about 600, 800 people. So we started with one week with 100, and the next week it was 300. Three different restaurants identifying not just our own families, but again, working with other service agencies, working with LUSD, where's the need, working with churches, working with the local NAACP, just adding on more services due to this individual's tremendous generosity. So it's kind of a, a Lego kind of a thing, building on a foundation that we already had and adding things to it. And, you know, it's it's, I think it's been very successful so far, but the need is still far greater than we're able to provide. That's terrific. And I will double down on that and call Chuck Rossini out again, because as I said before, individuals are the backbone of the nonprofit sector and that kind of leadership and excellence and finding the right nonprofit to do the right thing is something that should be celebrated and commended. So thank you very much. I'm wondering from a management perspective, I know that you spend a lot of time worried about efficacy and efficiency and effectiveness, which of the programs that you're running right now are succeeding the best and which ones of them are you, are you finding more challenges with? Well, you know, college bound has always been my, my baby, my, my feeling that we have the greatest impact with. So even though it's at a distance, you're I only it. saying that because we funded it. <laughs> yeah, well, great job. Again, it, again, it shows how <laughs> smart Mike is. That he's he's doubling down on how good the program is that we've invested in. Well, yeah, and you know, but you know, especially at a time like now, even though we have to do it at a distance, I think that's being able to do that still with the case management one-on-one that we do. 
that's been continuing to be successful and probably even a greater need. But definitely seeing the number of families that are coming for food and the need. And, and you know, I was at a, a hot meal distribution last Friday at a local church convent. And a, a gentleman came up and picked up a family food pack and walked away. And he had tears in his eyes. And he goes, I just want to thank everybody who donated this uh, food. My family would have been without uh, a dinner tonight. I'd have to say the food program is, even with College Bound, probably the most successful part of this. And probably the least successful, I would say, just because of access, accessibility, and maybe a glut of online efforts is our virtual programming. I mean, I think we're doing a good job. I've watched the virtual programming and the activities, and I think they're great. But kids are getting bombarded by what they have from their schools, what they have from other nonprofits. You know, we put ours on YouTube so anybody can access it again, not just our quote-unquote members, but anybody. But, you know, even if you have connectivity at home and you have one maybe computer, that's the toughest thing is really how do you really have the access to best engage in those types of online activities and programs. So, which is kind of scary because moving forward, I think both public schools and nonprofits like us will be running parallel paths on program delivery because, you know, my San Pedro Boys and Girls Club isn't going to be able to serve 350 youth when we reopen due to social distancing. So if I have to serve, let's say 150 youth, how do I serve those other 200 that aren't in the building, which means I'm going to have to do something virtually and find out a better way to make sure we are connecting with them. Mike, you mentioned that you're putting the programming on YouTube. How are you making the programming that you're putting on YouTube? Our staff is doing the filming. It's only one person doing the activity in the room and one person filming. Everybody has to go through our protocols anytime. Everybody enters the building with a mask and and gloves on. So it's in-house. It's really limited who's engaged in it. It's in different locations, so that's not, you know, 20 different people going into one building to do filming. You can film today with basically, you know, an iPad as easy as you can film with, you know, a normal traditional video camera. So we're able to spread it out. We're doing about five or six different virtual programs that we're showing a day, Monday through Friday. Have you thought about what comes next with those or where do you want to take it where you think it would be more effective? Up until last week, we were just trying to get everything in line to what we're doing now. And now we're working on, okay, how do we reopen? When we reopen, you know, probably coincides somewhat with schools, probably before public schools open, but eventually will be aligned. And when that happens, you know, Again, my biggest concern is the economic state that a lot of these families are going to be in and that the need for food ongoing might even be greater than it is right now when stimulus checks and other things run out. So we talked about how can we start our programs up again, run all of our sites, all 20 sites, but then still be part of meeting some of that food insecurity challenge. So Obviously, kids will get there in a normal situation, breakfast and lunch at school. They'll come to us, and those that are able to will get a snack and dinner, hot meal from us Monday through Friday. But what happens on the weekends? So an idea I've had for a couple of years now is because this issue of food on the weekends for poverty-level families that don't have a lot of disposable income is how do you serve those children and their families on the weekend when they've been pretty much provided meals all week long. 
So we're working right now on establishing a weekend wellness package program where we're going to be providing food packages for the weekend for families of, again, we're, we're kind of looking at a family of six as the average six to eight individuals and providing a lot of non-perishable items and some others that we can augment that with so that families will pick these up on Friday night, have enough food for Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And then when this week starts again, the children will be supported during the week between the school district and our organization. So that's, that's obviously, that's another new program for us. Our plan is to kick it off the first week of July and run it every Friday for a year. Of course, we've got to fund that and get different partners funded both dollar-wise and funded with a product or people that want to partner, warehousing, transportation. How do we buy the best amounts of food utilizing the funds that we have? So a little bit different job tasks for us, but thankfully we have a couple of months to get all this in line and start this program. You mentioned when we spoke the other day, the difference between providing food and then providing food for the weekend and how that presented a couple of different hurdles. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the daily food program that we have and even what we're doing today in an expanded version with the seven sites, it's, it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit simpler because, you know, we're, we're purchasing the prepackaged food from a vendor. It comes to us each day. We basically bag it up and put it on the table and it's grab and go. This program is going to be much different because our goal is 400 families every weekend and with a variety of different, mostly non-perishables, but there'll be some perishables in there too as we get more partners involved in this. The difference is how do you bring all of this together in a once a week distribution with purchasing, with the logistics of warehousing it and then packaging it and then distributing it out to the sites where we're gonna distribute from so that people don't have to come to one location which isn't very accessible. You know, the logistics of doing all that and then it's gonna be a probably a constant fundraising. My goal is to raise $500,000 and then also to match that with $500,000 of product or product support to get to the $1 million that we need uh, to do this for a full year at 400 families. So the big difference is, number one, the cost will be substantial because we'll be running our full program at the same time. So while we're going to have to make some cuts to our normal operating budget through furloughs and tightening in some areas because we know we're already about $600,000 down on our normal anticipated revenues due to the crisis and how it's affected uh, a lot of our funding streams. I I know a lot of our listeners are younger executive directors and and younger development directors, and you kind of just casually said, I'm just going to have to go raise (laughs) $500,000, which is, you know, probably an entire budget for a lot of nonprofits that are out there. I'm just wondering if you can share your wisdom, your thoughts, your battle plan. Where are you going to go to raise $500,000? Do you go back to your existing donors, to new donors in a time of crisis when giving may be down? Where do you find the money? What's your plan? Well, my plan is all of the above. I've already reached out to some of existing donors about the concept and also to some partners on the food product line here in the community, in the greater community. 
So I'm not going to have a million dollars of money and product when we start July 1. It's going to be an ongoing year round, without a doubt, scramble to some degree. But I think as I've, I've seen with our current program, you know, even in the limitations, donors want success and donors want impact. You know, when we came into this, we said, you know, okay, we, we could sit on our hands and say, woe is me, give money to the Boys and Girls Club because we're losing A, B, and C, and we can't run our normal operations. Or we can get up off our duff and find a way to serve the families that we need to serve in a different manner. And by doing that, we found out that the ability to raise money on the offset of that losing about 600000 We've, you know, found already about $250,000 in COVID-19 support that we didn't have before because people want to give to basic sustenance needs for for youth and families. Now, I, I truly believe that that will continue for a while, but at the same time, like you've mentioned, Trent, you know, there's going to be some longer-term donor fatigue or donor inability and it's just going to take uh, a diligence on the part of myself, my team, my board to, you know, be basically raising these funds as on a parallel basis. We're running our, our normal operational funds too. We've already started with our whole development team on looking at op- options for raising funds or product for this program, as well as reaching out to other nonprofits and other business people around warehousing and um, transportation and those types of things. Mike, I saw some tactics that you used, though, that I would love to talk through with you because you sent to me three things. One was a PDF that outlined what you were doing with your services to respond to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it was a very simple document, but laid out step-by-step what you're doing for families. And then you also sent a two-page document that was about wellness weekends, which had a lot of tactics in it, like the name, the amount, a very clear, like, this is what we need to accomplish this. And you also sent a video of you at your food distribution sites that um, your team had put together. And it was just you talking about your response while the food distribution was going on behind you. So I think that there are some very bold moves that you're making there and some really smart tactics that you're using. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you don't market, you know, this is coming from a guy who doesn't have Facebook and probably never will, but the organization does. If you don't market what you're doing and the success that you're having and the impact that you're having, uh, you're not going to be able to bring on the investors that you need uh, to do day-to-day operations, let alone new projects. So we've really worked, uh, my team, kudos to my my development team and my marketing communications person. They've done a tremendous job in, in getting the word out along with my board of all the things that we're engaged in right now and our plans on moving forward and reopening and still supporting the, the, the greater community with basic food nourishment needs. So I, you know, that, that didn't just happen. It was my team really developed those pieces and that concept and that distribution. So anybody can do that. And definitely anybody can do that better than me. So that's, I always go to the people who are smarter and say, okay, how do we show people we're doing this and let them, let them go to work and then distribute what we're doing. 
in these documents, you're being modest, I think. You've done a good job in thinking through what does a donor need to decide to be involved with this. The name especially jumped out to me, but also can you talk about the video one of your board members is in on your YouTube page? One of my board members made a video around the CARES Act and the ability to increase individual and corporate donations in terms of the amount that one can both donate and deduct from 60% to 100% this year with the CARES Act and even raise the limits on those amounts. And he, he said, look, I want to get this out so people understand that this is a great opportunity for individuals that first of all have the capacity to do this and can do it at a greater level. And then just to let even just the average person know that your donation can have an impact and you can can support your own taxes and, and tax write-offs. I just learned, I watched it again today. I just realized that even if you don't itemize your, your taxes, you still get up to a $300 write-off if you make a, a donation to a, to a nonprofit. And obviously you want to make that to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Los Angeles Harbor. But anyways, <laughs> so yeah, he did that on his own. It's on our YouTube page. And matter of fact, I was talking to a donor and I was, expl- I was trying to explain to him the the increase from 60% to 100%, and I wasn't doing a very good job of it. So well, let me forward you this video so somebody can tell you better than I am. So yeah, he it was pretty cool that our board member did that for us. Yeah, it was. it's all very simple stuff, but as you pick through the documents and go explore the Boys and Girls Club assets online, I found myself just finding out a little bit more information each time. Thank you. Congratulations to my team. That's terrific. So so Mike, you, I know you like to pretend that you're the oldest man in America and you've made several references about how you're, you're so old, which is just ludicrous, obviously. I'm curious as, as an old dog with, with new tricks here, is there a silver lining in some sense? To, are there things that you have learned operationally that you will carry forward with you when this crisis passes? The main things that I'll, I'll carry forward on, on this in terms of operations and what we're doing is that Sometimes we don't open our eyes enough to all of the great ideas and options that our our team brings. You know, sometimes as as leaders of an organization, you have a tendency to think that you've got all the best ideas and everybody else should line up behind you in lockstep. When in reality, you find out, man, there's a lot of different things here that I don't know anything about. How How do we do a better safety and cleaning program for our buildings for when we reopen. And we just happen to have two people on our board that used to work for oil refineries or on the the safety teams for those oil refineries. I've learned from this that there's just a lot of people that can bring resources and thoughts to the table that myself and maybe even my normal staff don't have that skill set. And that's where board members and other community people can really help us out. So just taking those from what other people are doing and not trying to reinvent the wheel all the time is probably the the most important thing I've I've taken away from these last uh, few weeks, without a doubt. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's it's been it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate uh, talking with both of you. Thanks, Mike, for a great talk, but also for the good work you've been doing for a long time to serve the community in which you work. 
That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.